Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of um, speaking once again on the podcast with Dr. Andrea Akri um, on a very exciting publication. Um, uh, Andrea is actually assistant professor in tantric studies at the École Pratique des Hautes Etudes in uh, Paris, France, um, and he is the co-editor, uh, along with Paolo Rosari, on a volume called Tantra, Magic, and Vernacular Religions in Monsoon Asia. Uh, Andrea, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So tell us how one conceives of a volume entitled Tantra, Magic, and Vernacular Religions in Monsoon Asia. How did this come about? Well, I think uh, uh, both Paolo and myself wanted to fill a gap current scholarship on Tantra. Uh, There is quite a lot of interest in Tantra. Uh, uh, Many scholars are studying various traditions, various aspects of this phenomenon, but still, uh, you know, this Tantra remains a bit elusive. Uh, And so there are still gaps in our understanding uh, of this phenomenon. And we really wanted to actually uh, fill this gap, especially uh, in... uh, well, we individuated a few problems. Uh, uh, one problem is the geography. Uh, so we chose uh, a broad geographical approach. So we chose Monsoon Asia uh, rather than uh, focusing on Tantra in a single you know, uh, region or macro region like South Asia, India, or Southeast Asia, East Asia, but really to have this broad uh, perspective that uh, I think really helps us to understand the big picture to make sense of certain dynamics that were not so clear before. And uh, uh, also, well, uh, we have a very broad chronological uh, approach. So we uh, have chapters dealing with the pre-modern, medieval period, let's say from uh, the 6th, 7th century uh, up to uh, the present. Uh, and so also methodologically really wanted to be broad uh, to have not only uh, scholars working on texts uh, like myself, uh, but also ethnographers, uh, so as to really an art historian, so as to uh, try to capture uh, the elusiveness uh, of tantra from many different methodological point of view. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is pretty much yeah. Yeah, certainly uh, traditions as broad and vast as say tantra. Uh, they don't always cooperate with um, national boundaries, and so it's it's perhaps wise to to 
to look at a broader region that you describe as monsoon Asia for more of a, a generalist audience. Um, what describe monsoon Asia? What would that apply to? Yes. So monsoon Asia, uh, broadly speaking, uh, is a region, uh, a macro area, uh, a region uh, of Asia where you have similar geo-environmental factors. Uh, for example, the monsoon winds, so the seasonal winds that every year, you know, uh, more or less at the same, around the same time, change direction. And, and those winds influence the climate, for example, they bring rain. Uh, and also they influenced in the past, uh, you know, the connections, the, in, the connectivity between uh, areas of Asia that were far from each other, for example, India and China, you know, so the uh, via Southeast Asia. So people traveled by sea very much and, uh, and the monsoon really allowed this connectivity to happen. And uh, the monsoon influenced also aspect of culture and religion. Uh, we have similar, you know, for example, cultigens, we have similar uh, plants, fruits, uh, crops, you know, and uh, and also probably they influence the, the cosmology, you know, the, the, the religious systems elaborated that by many people uh, with very different cultures. So we don't want to kind of, you know, say that people in Monsoon Asia are all the same. You're, you're saying that this area, it makes sense to study this area as a connected system. So an area going from the Indian Ocean, especially the, let's say, the coasts of, of uh, India uh, to uh, China, all the way to China and Japan, uh, but even the interior. So, for example, the interior of China was connected to the coast. The interior, you know, the interland of India, uh, even the Himalayan region was very much connected uh, and part of this system. So, uh, just like Eurasia, uh, so scholars uh, talk about, for example, Europe uh, connected all the way to uh, Russia and even Japan, you know, uh, I think we can also speak about Monsoon Asia. And this concept, uh, in fact, was already uh, applied to Oriental studies, let's say, by early scholars, uh, in particular French scholars. Uh, one uh, really is very, very uh, important is Paul Mousse, who uh, wrote about, uh, uh, you know, Hinduism uh, in Vietnam from a Monsoon Asian perspective. So saying we cannot always take, take for granted that India was the cradle of, of Indic religions and that which then they were exported, but there are more complex dynamics at play. So it kind of applied, you know, to Monsoon Asia as a theater uh, to study uh, the movement of religions, of cults and people. Would you say a, a word about uh, the use of the term magic in this context? Yes. So uh, magic is a contested word, a contested term. Uh, is difficult to define. And so I know that quite a lot of scholarship exists, uh, but it's also true that scholarship has tended to focus on, you know, uh, let's say Western magic, uh, classical, you know, like Greek, Latin, uh, ancient Roman magic, uh, Egypt. Uh, not so much work has been done on magic in Asian context. Um, and this is definitely true. But I think we, we, we do not, uh, let's say, we, we accept uh, the term magic uh, as, a, as a kind of, you know, convenient, useful uh, category. Uh, as long as you define it, it's fine. And uh, I think you can uh, really individuate uh, this uh, something that was magic, so this ritual procedure, maybe we can call it, we can focus, for example, on the, on the 
uh, ritual, you know, uh, actions or practices or magical magic as ritual practice, or for example, on the uh, this uh, uh, the substances, the magical substances that were used, uh, or we can also uh, try to you know transcend this category. In fact, one chapter in the book critiques is a, contains a critique of this term that, uh, according to the author, cannot be applied. For example, to Shrividyatu, to South Indian, this South Indian tantric tradition, uh, you can you cannot use the term magic, but you have to go emic and and so imagine other categories. But I think this is we wanted to have this in the title really to to uh, draw attention to this aspect still relatively neglected of the vast and multifarious phenomenon of tantra. Let's perhaps, um, since we've just mentioned it in passing, let's perhaps uh, talk a little bit about the Sri Vija article by Monica Hirmer um, regarding that critique. Say a bit more about um, uh, uh, her thoughts on the use of magic for this particular Sri Vija tradition. Yes, well, uh, actually she... She starts, I mean, her critique is very much grounded in Western philosophy. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I think she, she uh, discussed Heidegger uh, and other philosophers, Wittgenstein, for example. But also she has a, a kind of, you know, she, she, has, she, has, she also starts, uh, she approaches the phenomenon from an, an embodied perspective. Uh, so she spent uh, a lot of time uh, in Tamil Nadu, in uh, in uh, uh, South India, and so she really uh, kind of she she was able to capture uh, the emic element, uh, and so at some point she said that uh, she could not no longer she was no longer distinguished uh, by the the people in the community that regarded her as an Indian uh, person. Uh, she took uh, a new name, a new identity, so to speak. Uh, so it's it's kind of. She, has, she, did, she developed this concept of beingness, uh, and, and she kind of contrasts a modern scientific framework, uh, which is uh, indeed kind of materialistic, uh, and the emic uh, framework, which is very different. So, for example, uh, I mean, the, the, the cosmological aspect uh, of the macrocosmos and the microcosmos are very much uh, you know, involved in correspondences and, and magic is very much about that and tantra is very much about that working with correspondences between you know the the uh, macrocosmos and the microcosmos because the everyday reality and internal realities so you kind of have to access this uh, new ontology in order to make sense and not just uh, define uh, practices as magic uh, which is a very laden category, it's reloaded with uh, even prejudice, uh, we can say, so Western prejudice. And it's not uh, useful. So we don't need magic. We can explain uh, what is going on by accessing other categories, other terms, uh, which were elaborated by the tradition. Yeah, it calls to mind other terms that are certainly technical terms within religious studies that have um, sometimes... Um, pejorative uh, undertones in common parlance, terms such as uh, myth or cult, you know. So so it clearly sometimes um, we use terms in a technical sense that may carry wittingly or unwittingly other baggage historically or, or socioculturally. Um, so that there's one chapter um, critiquing the term of use of magic that focuses on uh, Sri Vijay tradition, but it's not the only goddess chapter in here, is it? There are 
There are a couple more. Do you want to say a word about them? Yes. Well, this is actually the chapter that is really that really revolves around the goddess, but goddesses are indeed found in other chapters. Uh, for instance, by uh, Chiara Policardi, so the, the chapter on mm. the female Ganesha. So uh, she traces the background of the elephant face goddess in medieval Shaiva Tantric traditions. So Chiara has been studying yoginis, so these demi goddesses or supernatural beings, female supernatural beings, uh, which are indeed uh, well controversial. Let's say um, uh, it's kind of difficult to to first of all, understand about their origin. And in the past, uh, some scholars have, uh, I think, quite uncritically just hypothesized uh, that yoginis derive from uh, a non-Aryan uh, substratum. Uh, they are non-Brahmanical uh, uh, deities, entities. In fact, the temples dedicated to them are found in the so-called tribal belts, the Munda belts of India. So Central India, Eastern India, Odisha, Madhya Pradesh, uh, etc. And this may be true, after all. Uh, so we, we might have uh, really, uh, it might be a kind of uh, cult that was Brahmanized at some point, but was not Brahmanical at the beginning. And in fact, she, she focused on this uh, goddess that was probably a folk goddess, so a kind of local, original, non-Brahmanical goddess, but which was uh, incorporated uh, into Brahmanism. And she made comparison also with this, another goddess, Jeshta, uh, which is uh, a, a goddess that was already found in kind of Tardovedic uh, texts, and uh, which which has an iconography as well, but not has not been studied. And uh, and so these yoginis are actually really uh, uh, encompassing uh, a lot of these uh, local cults. And so this chapter is uh, is also interesting because it uh, marries, so to speak, uh, the study of texts. Uh, Sanskrit text with the study of uh, iconography, so the, the statues and bas reliefs uh, of these deities found in, in these open-air temples, yogini temples in central India. Can we say that there is a, um, how to say, a, um, an affinity between, or um, um, would you say that there are, there's a great overlap between goddess traditions and tantric traditions? I would say yes. Um, it's a stereotype. Uh, it probably it has been abused in the past, but it's true. You tend to have uh, goddesses in tantrism. For example, uh, you can contrast the transgressive, you know, like non-dual traditions, uh, Shakta tradition in tantrism, uh, which in fact have God do have goddesses, or even the Bhairava, so the masculinized tradition. Uh, they have goddesses with the Siddhanta. The Siddhanta is the kind of mainstream uh, soft core, so to speak, uh, Tantra, uh, which has comparatively less goddesses or give less importance, less prominence to goddesses. So I think uh, it it, it is true that uh, a lot of Tantric traditions have goddesses, probably more so than Brahmanical tradition, which tend to be more masculinized. Um, Yeah. And what was this process like for you, um, co-editing this volume? In terms of, um, were there particularly study, were there particular studies which stood out to you? Were there particular insights about tradition? I'm sure it's a rich and variegated process. But what sort of, um, what sort of stood out to you, you know, in terms of um, editing this volume? 
Yes, uh, well, uh, there are a couple of chapters that indeed uh, I think are quite important and really espouse the intellectual agenda of the volume. The first, so the very first chapter is uh, uh, by Ronald Davidson, More Pretantic Sources of Tantrism, Skulls and Skullcaps. Now, this is a, a kind of provocative, if you wish, uh, chapter. Uh, it's one of a series of studies written by, by this scholar. And uh, I find it interesting because it really, it, it looks at pre-tantric source of Tantra. I think one of the problems of, of the study of Tantra nowadays is that most scholars kind of stop at the, at the first, uh, you know, a level of evidence that is the, the earliest properly Tantric text, which uh, go back to the sixth, early sixth century, we can say. And, uh, but obviously, you know, it, it was not a tabula rasa, right? So this phenomenon started developed, uh, on a, on a kind of ground that already existed. And this ground already included what we call, we might call popular religions, you know, uh, folk religions, whatever. Uh, and of course, also Brahmanical religions, very much Vedic, you know, kind of post-Vedic religion. Uh, and so what, what Ronald Davidson tries to do is to look for, uh, you know, pre-tantric, um, let's say, uh, agents in this case, or, or cults, uh, practices, like uh, the practices uh, that use skulls as skull cups. And these are very much, so the scholars tend to define these practices as belonging to the class of the category of practitioners called kapalikas, so these very extreme transgressive ascetics who uh, use scarves to drink uh, liquor, you know, to, to eat. And uh, they actually uh, had also like female partners, uh, they danced, they sang. So they are very, very much non-Brahmanical, right? And, but the problem is that it's our first level of evidence and also very scant because we don't have original scriptures by the Kapalikas. So scholars tend to, to say, well, this is a Kapalika feature, you know, but they ignore the fact that before the, the Kapalika, before the first, uh, you know, the earliest evidence about this group, there already existed practitioners and ideas, you know, having to do with the use, the ritual use of skulls uh, and skull cups. And so uh, this is a kind of risky business, right, to, to look at pretextual evidence. But uh, uh, I think Colonel Davidson uh, well, looks at, for example, the Pali Canon or text in Chinese, which are considerably earlier than the, the, the secondhand sources that, uh, you know, mention the Kapalika. And so we can actually scavenge, you know, uh, uh, evidence here and there to reconstruct the genesis, you know, the prehistory, if you will, uh, of this uh, movement, especially the Kapalika movement. And uh, uh, also the chapter that I co-wrote with Alexandra Venta actually very much has to deal with that. Uh, and so we focus on the Shmashanika, so on this, uh, let's say, non-tantric or pre-tantric, um, you know, category of practitioners or simple cremation ground workers, uh, which are already find in the, in the Pali Canon, uh, but especially in this kind of shared uh, Buddhist and Shaiva culture of magic. They call it magical substratum. Uh, that that really, uh, well, from the study of the substratum, and you don't really even have to hypothesize the substratum. 
you just study the early Shaiva and Buddhist tantric texts, you find a lot of similarities. Uh, for example, the, the magical formulas, the ingredients that used, and you really find a, a kind of, uh, you know, uh, cremation ground lore, and uh, and uh, especially the, the you know uh, uh, let's say instructions to uh, find and uh, to use skulls and uh, other impure objects. For example, the uh, clothes of a dead person, of a chandalas, of an outcase. Right? And uh, and so this uh, this kind of you know lore we can we can call it. Uh, you don't only find in this in this tantric text, but in much earlier texts. And so we wanted to show that there is a kind of continuity there, and uh, and so that's why we use the word substrate. Um, you know, I... yeah. Please go. Ahead. Please continue. Uh, well, just maybe I can I can add one more chapter, chapter number three by Michael Slober, uh, entitled "Shamans and Buddha Tantricas: Easter Genealogy?" Question mark. So uh, we all know shamanism is, is a contested term, uh, but uh, I agree with uh, with Michael. Uh, according to Michael, we can use the term shaman or shamanism if we define it. So we have a kind of broad definition of this term uh, that that is anything that has to do with say uh, inter intermediaries uh, between the supernatural, invisible world and visible world. So operators of, for example, uh, that have to do with uh, healing, right? Uh, and, and all these things that you don't only find, you, you find in like the Brahmanical uh, civilization, the Brahmanical culture, but also non-Brahmanical video. So the spirit, the cult of spirit being, you know, uh, exorcism, possession. You find them in India everywhere, okay? in both Brahmanical and non-Brahmanical uh, milieu. For example, among the so-called tribal or the kind of non, uh, you know, Indo-Aryan-speaking uh, people, and he uh, shows, try to show that uh, kind of revive the, the old theory that the word shaman, so samana, uh, comes from the shramana, so the, the word uh, shramana uh, in Sanskrit, and it has been kind of uh, borrowed by uh, people in Central Asia and East Asia. And so the Siberian shamans actually, you know, uh, were somehow, uh, there were kind of, there is a kind of phylogenetic um, relationship uh, there. And it brings out some convincing linguistic evidence, actually, without saying that, you know, the shramanas or the aesthetics that the Buddha mentioned uh, are the same as uh, actual uh, shamans. But there, are, there is an interesting, you know, I think, argument there to be made. And uh, Michael is, is studying the Buddha Tantras and the Garuda Tantra, so this very, let's say, neglected and very ancient corpus of tantric texts uh, devoted to, uh, for example, healing from snake bites uh, or uh, driving away uh, malignant spirits. And these, these texts have really scantily, uh, scantily been preserved because uh, they fell out of fashion. They are very practical, we can say magic-oriented. And already they, they, in India, you know, the they kind of uh, tantric, prevalent tantric fashion of the 6th, 7th century, they kind of, you know, they didn't like this, this stuff. It was kind of too practical. They wanted more probably, you know, the new philosophical tantra or other uh, manifestation of high tantra. And so this, uh, this, uh, what is interesting about this text is that uh, still you can find 
some tropes, some practices that seem to have been uh, carried out uh, by the non-Indo-Aryan speaking communities or the Austro-Asiatic speaking communities of India. Uh, for example, such an association between metal and, uh, and spirit that you also find in the, in the Brahmanical text. For example, metal is associated with demons you know, in Indian lore. And Austro-Asiatic people happen to be very good in metallurgy. Uh, also, he has some evidence of borrowing of, let's say, uh, Munda people deities, especially female deities, uh, in these tantras. And so not the other way around. So we have a, not a case of Sanskritization, but actually of adoption, borrowing from, uh, let's say, mainstream Sanskritic Brahmanical um, culture of tribal elements. And so this is, I think, important to show that Tantra is more complex uh, than previously assumed. And that there are both, you know, two-way transfers between different milieu, not only the high, you know, elite uh, and uh, written, let's say, literary Tantra, but also the, the folk and, uh, and practices that maybe prima facie, we would not, you know, uh, link to Tantra. Mm. Fascinating. Um, I have to say that um, uh, Michael Sluber's um, argument is fascinating, and I actually did not realize the potential etymological link between uh, um, shamans and uh, shamana traditions. But having said that, um, the majority of my teaching these days is in the continuing studies environment, adult learners. Some have a great deal of knowledge about um, all things um Indic and uh, and some don't, and so I often try to create analogs or corollaries to, to express ideas and uh, you know in, in teaching sort of um, uh, the history of Indic traditions. Obviously, we start with the Vedic tradition and then then we move on to this what I think of as this 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 renouncer you know sort of revolution or reformation that that becomes um, that penetrates tradition over a number of centuries and 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 just describing them to a more general audience i often say think of um think of uh, uh um uh, re reclusive uh shamanic figures you know without using it as a technical term so i was actually really fascinated to know that there is there is perhaps some evidence of relating the term uh shamana to to shamans and also regarding the first two papers you described, particularly uh, uh, Ronald Davidson's, yeah, you know, I don't find it perilous at all to make conjecture that about phenomena that occurs before textual tradition. Actually, quite the opposite. I think that we have so internalized in in, in the Western academic tradition and in, in Western culture at large, we've internalized. Um, uh, the, the, the 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 religious uh, uh, vision of tradition starting with and being grounded in text, and we really have to continually unlearn that and remind ourselves that it may very well be the case in South Asian traditions that texts are condensations of vibrant traditions, and that teachings are very much alive, not in text to this day. I've studied with a number of teachers, of emic teachers, and teachings directly pertinent to texts are not actually in texts. And there may have been times when the texts themselves had yet to be brought into being, at least in their Sanskritic forms that we have them now often. And so I think I think it is important to think of text not necessarily as the beginning of a tradition, 
but potentially is the, the articulation or condensation or crystallization of um, of pre-existing uh, um, um, religious phenomena. Um, so oh, let's see. Let's maybe let's maybe tie in a couple of the other papers. So in addition to to these traditions of what we think of as South Asia, um, it appears that we have vibrant tantric traditions in what we think of as Southeast Asia as well, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Um, so we we actually we have nine chapters in the book and try to cover pretty much, you know, uh, like, oh, most of the say the regions uh, where you have vibrant antique traditions in India and Southeast Asia. So we have a chapter on, um, parity chapter actually, on tantra, magical tantra in Bengal, Bali, and Java, uh, and also a chapter on tantrism and, and the were tiger lore of Burma, Thailand, and Cambodia. So we have both mainland and islands on this station. And this is, it is often, you know, this area, this region has been often overlooked, uh, not only by scholars of Tantra, I say but also by South Asians. Whereas in the past, it was very much, you know, part of a, of a kind of cosmopolis, as Sheldon Pollock has defined a Sanskrit cosmopolis, but there were other cosmopolis, or demon, demon let's say, uh, not cosmopolis, but let's say uh, pandemon- pandemonious, you know, so like kind of demonological cosmopolis as uh, David White has called it. So this, uh, uh, so the first chapter by June McDaniel. So June McDaniel is a scholar who has started her career uh, by, with the study of Bengal Tantra, so Tantra in Northeastern India. And then she has also taken an interest in Bali and Java. And this is a chapter I quite like because indeed it tries to find the common ground between, uh, say, high and low tantra, you know, the folk and the elite tantra, and so what we call magic, in in uh, both areas, so in uh, in Eastern India and also Bali and Java, and even as far as Java is concerned, in Islamic context, so in contemporary Java, where you have, in fact, the kind of, you know, uh, Islam. Uh, became the dominant religion already starting in the 16th, 17th century, but you, st- you still have a lot of what we call Hindu-Buddhist elements that are carried forward, that still survive in the culture, very much part of the culture of the everyday life uh, of people. And so you have a very uh, many, let's say, uh, practitioners who seem to be, they are kind of nominally Islamic, but they're basically, you know, they have uh, Indic mantras, and they still have uh, uh, Manuscripts that contain uh, different degrees of, you know, uh, let's say Indic or Indicized material. And so it, it, it makes sense to study them uh, comparatively. So she also studied, for example, the, the similar category of healer and uh, black magicians from Bali. Uh, and I think this, uh, this, this practitioners really use texts that we, we can say stem from uh, some tantric tradition. All right. Uh, even though there is a lot, of course, of regional, you know, local Southeast Asian uh, peculiar to the place, but we cannot just study them, I think, in isolation. And so it is very important to to kind of uh, study both South and Southeast Asia in parallel, because studying these materials from Southeast Asia can actually give us new insights also about, uh, let's say, the, the material in the in the so-called homeland, you know, in India itself. 
And uh, also interesting is the last chapter by Francesco Brigenti about indeed the were tiger lore uh, in, in mainland uh, Southeast Asia. And so this is something that uh, I really wanted to have a chapter that indeed brings together elements, you know, uh, that are not usually, uh, you don't find, right, uh, together. Uh, so what has were tiger lore to do uh, with Tantra? Right? It seems that it has. Uh, at the level of practitioners, for example, because this this, this lore is actually uh, mixed with uh, various uh, layers of uh, folk uh, practices and practitioners, but also high uh, Buddhism, for example, Mahayana uh, Buddhism and now Theravada uh, Buddhism. So there are there, what we think, what we call Buddhism is actually, you know, uh, really, uh, a, a kind of a configure, different configurations in different places. And in Southeast Asia, there's a lot of what we call magic, you know, talismans, mantras, diagrams, and uh, filters, uh, and so on. And well, it seems that there is a lot of hybrid, you know, hybridization going on. And so uh, there were tantric traditions in these places, in Cambodia, for example, in Thailand, you know, up to the 13th, 14th century, and even after, perhaps, uh, kind of survivals you know, that have survived. Um, almost to the present, you can say. So it still makes sense to to look at the written sources or at the living tradition uh, to see how this this uh, probably local uh, motif of the were tiger, you know, this kind of uh, shamanic, you can say, uh, element has been mixed and hybridized with uh, Buddhist, perhaps even Shaiva uh, tantric traditions in the past. And in the present, so uh, yes, we really wanted to kind of uh, have in the book uh, some chapters dealing with Southeast Asia because we wanted to bring out the, the importance of this region that is often overlooked, uh, precisely because we don't have as many written sources as other as in other regions. But of course, we still have manifestations of uh, tantra that have a kind of you know, genealogical connection with Tantra that are not necessarily written and not necessarily, you know, uh, Shaiva or Buddhist. For example, in Java, we have some Islamic, you know, I could even say some kind of Islamic Tantra, uh, if you wish. Uh, and so this is, I think, uh, important to, to stress. Absolutely fascinating, I have to say. Um, listen, could you say a quick word about um, the the field of Tantra studies, and in particular, just underscore, perhaps will be slightly repetitive, but just underscore um, what it is this volume does uh, within the field of Tantra studies. Yes, well, uh, as I said at the beginning, at the beginning, first of all, this volume really um, highlights the geographically wide approach to Tantra. And this is not something obvious, you know, we cannot take it for granted because as of now, we, there is a lot of, you know, everybody prays, uh, let's say, the kind of, you know, inter-civilizational, you know, intra-Asian connections. But still our departments, you know, academic departments are organized according to very strict geographical, you know, lines drawn in the post-war, in the Cold War period, basically, South Asia, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, East Asia. and we specialize usually in one, you know, tradition in one language or two, and and so this volume really wanted to give this geographically wide approach. We don't want to 
talk about you know states or but about transformations about this context this this enormous region very diverse but with some you know uh, let's say factors that are shared and partially shared history you can say then again there is there is the problem of chronology so this volume the, the first three chapters specifically deal with this controversial if you wish uh, aspect of tantric studies so this kind of uh, it's not a quest for the origins, but it's just looking at continuities of, at the development of the genesis of this phenomenon uh, in the long durée. So uh, going before the kind of you know, the first textual evidence properly tantric. So looking at other sources of evidence, textual of course, but also non-textual. And uh, also we we have uh, a problem of milieu. I think tantra has, has focused a lot. is focusing a lot on Sanskrit texts. And it is natural because Sanskrit texts are the most numerous, uh, probably the most ancient. And so uh, most of people studying Tantra are, are Sanskritists. Okay? But there is also a very important vernacular dimension. Uh, for example, in, in Indian vernacular languages or in Southeast Asian vernacular languages like Old Javanese, for example, or Balinese. And, and so I think this volume uh, tries at least uh, makes a gesture, so to speak, uh, in that direction, toward a direction of putting on the same, you know, intellectual level, uh, Sanskrit and non-Sanskrit sources, and also different milieus. So we have the Sanskrit, the elite on the one hand, the high tantra, which has really attracted a lot of attention, but also the low tantra, let's say the folk. Not to say that it is low, you see, but just to say that it is, for example, uh, not written, you know, or uh, it is indeed belonging to the uh, so-called tribals or non-Brahmanical uh, context. And so these, these really have, these, these, these two levels uh, are not uh, compartmentalized so neatly. There is a lot of interaction going on, uh, both geographically and, and, you know, between different milieus. So this, uh, we wanted to bring out this phenomena that are still difficult to define, right? Magic, shamanism, uh, and Tantra itself is also not easy to define, but I think it kind of makes sense. Uh, there is something there, there are overlaps, you know, there are uh, phenomena that you cannot just, uh, you know, discount as figments of scholars' imagination, but uh, there are really living practices there, there are beliefs that you can uh, make sense of by drawing from all these different categories. Uh, and so this is, uh, I think, a rather innovative approach. Uh, in in the in the field of tantric studies, uh, of course, it is you know probably it will draw some criticism, but uh, we really wanted to let's say uh, stimulate perhaps a debate, uh, start a debate, and uh, and uh, open uh, new vistas on this phenomenon that remains difficult uh, to understand. And criticism is fine. This is uh, this is in large measure the dharma, uh, you know, of a scholar of, of some yeah. critically engaging work, and certainly that's not the mo of podcast. My my dharma is to is to is to um, put forth uh, the merits and the contours of any particular work. But you know, um, uh, certainly my work is not uh, above critique, and, and no one's is. The the the, the critical engagement is great. It, it's it's it's. It's uh, it needs to happen. Having said that, um, uh, for those of us who have critical engagement skills and are able to think in certain ways, um, which probably would, would include you know all of the guests on this podcast and many of the listeners, 
that's not nearly as difficult as pushing the envelope, as advancing, as positing something. And so, yes, critiquing can be done. Absolutely. The, the use of the word magic, um, the boundaries, the, 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 the quote unquote, you know, uh, air quotes, uh, anachronism, what have you. Having said that, um, the merits of a work that are leading with praxis, right? People do things before they name what they're doing. And sometimes they never name what they're doing. And you go to another culture and that culture has named what you've been doing. Uh, and you don't, you learn a different language. Oh, they name that. They call that into their conscious mind. Oh, they make a distinction with that. We don't do that in our language. Oh, and so um, clearly it's wise to take one's lead from what people are doing and how they understand tradition, irrespective of whether or not they specifically use the word Tantra that obviously came into being at a certain point in history as, as we're, well, we're all well aware. But it's not the case that, you know, a group of people decided to write some texts and spread the good news and said, Hey, we're going to be tantricas now. That could not be the case. Yeah. There has to be a history. There has to be a context and there has to be a reason why these practices are so um, ass uh, assimilatable. If that's a word into so many other traditions. Right. And so yeah. I find this, uh, I find this work uh, utterly fascinating. Um, so let me end with this question. What is the next step for you in particular? Is this, uh, what's next? What are you researching on next? Yes. Well, uh, I would like to continue, you know, and to follow this, this trajectory. Uh, I would like to continue also to, to study, for example, text, tantric text from, from Java and Bali, so in vernacular language and Sanskrit to uh, show that, again, this text can be very useful. Uh, we can study that as a cultural product in their own terms, of course, but also in a comparative way, and for example, use them to recover a strand of Tantra that was lost in India, you know, that, that probably goes back to the 5th, 6th, 7th century, and, uh, and then everything changed, and, you know, so this, this material is important. So the periphery, the study the periphery, the so-called peripheries of the Indic world, to understand uh, Tantra as a general category, but also the, the historical development of the phenomenon. So I would like, for example, I would like to continue also to, to kind of bring into the picture also the, the Chinese material, which is very interesting. There is Chinese canonical Buddhist material as a lot of very early, you know, uh, pre-tantric, proto-tantric, tantric, -tantric, tantric. Uh, material, um, uh, for example, the Garuda Tantras, you know, uh, uh, some fragments have survived. Even Shaiva material has been, has been incorporated, you know, in, in Buddhist uh, scriptures. Uh, there's a lot about uh, uh, possession, for example, Avesha, so now this particularly associated with Shaivism or Bhairava Tantra. So it's, it's for me very interesting, again, to study Tantra, you know, in the periphery. And, and so, and to understand better the in a more holistic way, the phenomenon. I really would like to continue to do that and expand uh, my current also, you know, uh, regions. Uh, I cannot, of course, study Chinese material, but other scholars can join and, and we can, you know, bring our uh, expertise and, and try to make sense of this very multicultural phenomenon. Brilliant. We'll certainly have you back on the podcast at some point, whether to discuss a, a, a book, a conference of development in the field of Tantra studies. Thank you for appearing today. Thank you, Raj.
For those listening, we have been speaking, of course, with Dr. Andrea Acri, who is the co-editor of a fascinating new um, contribution to the Rutledge Studies in Tantric Traditions series. Uh, It's called Tantra Magic and Vernacular Religions in Monsoon Asia. Um, Keep well, uh, keep listening, keep reading, keep thinking, keep reflecting, and keep contemplating the interplay, if any, between um, uh, Tantra and magic. Take care.